0: Hello everyone and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name is David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. I begin today's podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land from which we broadcast today, the Ngunnawal people, and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and recognise the important and ongoing contribution they make to the life of this city and region. Today, we speak with the Australian Border Force Commissioner, Michael Outram, who returns to Work With Purpose to discuss how his organisation has managed the challenge of COVID-19 while delivering on its mission to protect Australia's border and enable legitimate trade and travel. The Australian Border Force is the Australian law enforcement agency responsible for offshore and onshore border control, enforcement, investigations, compliance and detentions in Australia. Commissioner Outram began his policing career on the streets of London, spending 20 years in the Metropolitan Police Service, rising to the rank of Detective Chief Inspector, serving in roles in anti-corruption, anti-terrorism, and major investigations. He came to Australia when he was seconded to the New South Wales Police and a role with the Independent Commission Against Corruption. Since then, he's worked with both the Australian Crime Commission and the Australian Federal Police before joining Border Force in 2015, and he was sworn in as Commissioner in 2018. For the super fans of Work With Purpose, you will remember that Commissioner Outram joined the AFP Commissioner Rhys Kershaw in Episode 9 while the ABF was still dealing with the fallout from the Ruby Princess cruise ship passenger incident in Sydney. But certainly a lot has happened since then. Michael Altrum, welcome to Work With Purpose. That must seem a long time ago.
1: David, indeed, um, in some ways a lifetime ago because um, things are very different today. As you say, in 12 months, a, a tremendous amount has changed.
0: What has changed and and what has happened through the year, and, and perhaps in a potted version, take us from that time um, through the year about some of the big changes that have taken place.
1: Yeah, sure. Obviously, back then, um, we were very focused on the issues that arose through Ruby Princess, of course, in the public discourse, but we were still very much fo- focused on closing down borders to you know, high-risk countries and travellers that were high-risk, implementing the exemptions regime. And um, back then, of course, we thought that closing the borders was a complicated process, but I can tell you, uh, David, that closing the borders uh, pales in significance and and complication in terms of what opening them is is like. But in fact, when the focus shifted to the vaccine rollout uh, and um, Major General Fruin came in to undertake that with the Department of Health, it kind of gave us a bit of breathing room. The focus really went on to the vaccine rollout, and while states and territories have been obviously adjusting their own individual um, border restrictions and controls with their state orders. It gave us time to think about opening the border to travellers, to trade, um, uh, shipping, cruise ships, et cetera, and to start that planning process airport by airport, port by port. And we've been doing that. And it gave us a bit of lead in time to where we are now. And you've probably heard some of the announcements today from the New South Wales government. And I think the prime minister may actually be making an announcement as we speak in terms of the opening of the international border and how that might be phased out. So we're ready and prepared for that. Um, Still a lot of things to be worked through state by state again. The other thing I would say is it's been hard for us in some ways operationally, where, as you mentioned just now, we run onshore uh, detention. That means we have detention centres in many states and territories, including on Christmas Island, as a result of COVID, we've had to reopen Christmas Island to deal with the the fact that we couldn't return a lot of our detainees to the countries uh, where they normally return to. And moving detainees around the network is normally how we rebalance the numbers in the network. And of course, with state border closures, that's made that really difficult. Keeping COVID nineteen out of our detention centres is a huge success the Australian Border Force, we haven't had one positive case in our detention population, but that hasn't come easily. Uh, We've had to fight hard um, to maintain that position. Moreover, our maritime crews, our maritime crews may live in Cairns, they may live in Sydney, and their ship may sail from Darwin or their ship may, may well sail from Perth. And of course, we've had to deal with the border restrictions in terms of moving our crews around to avoid them constantly having to go into domestic quarantine arrangements. I could go on, David. There's, there's so many ways that things have changed today, but very much now we're focused on how are we going to start to open the border and try and get back to some sense of normality in 2022.
0: Yeah. Now, I really do want to talk about opening the borders, but, I, but, but I'm intrigued by this challenge for the bureaucracy around so many issues? And as you say, you could have gone on, you've just mentioned a few. With so many competing priorities, how do you make the best decisions? And how do you make decisions about what it is that you're going to do next?
1: That's a very good question. Um, We've actually realised through COVID-19 that prioritisation is actually a strategy to deal with the complexity to deal with the stretch in our resources, to deal with our attention span. We, we can't focus on everything all the time. So ruthless prioritisation, in fact, will be a, the mantra of the ABF going forwards as well. Um, clearly, we get a steer from government. We're very closely connected into cabinet processes, very closely connected with our minister, the Minister of Home Affairs, of course, and, and other ministers, and so we know what the government's priorities are. You have, of course, to get ahead of what the, what the government's agenda is. We knew that opening the border was was coming at us. The, the prime minister set out the four-phase plan, so we've been mapping that against the work that we have to do. Of course, in terms of that that prioritisation, what are our priorities might not be a priority for other Commonwealth or state departments or organisations, and you know everyone's focusing on their own things. So, for example, I mentioned earlier on the Department of Health may have been focused on the vaccine rollout where we wanted them to focus with us on opening borders. So prioritisation also requires a bit of negotiation and collaboration as well across the Commonwealth and the states and territories, sitting down with airlines, airports, state health, state premiers, state police. This work's all been going on behind the scenes, but it also, of course, requires good governance. Within our organisation during the pandemic, uh, we've actually increased significantly and exponentially our detection of illicit narcotics at the border. Um, there's been massive increases, 100% almost, in consignments by sea cargo, 50% in air cargo, and our detection rates have gone up. And so illicit drugs is a priority too in detecting those drugs, and we've moved air- officers out of airports to been able to do that into the, our cargo um, inspection areas. And, of course, the AFP's Operation Ironside, Lay bare some of the challenges we face at the border. So they're, they're competing priorities. And through our governance processes, through our, our decision-making, we have to enact those priorities at the coalface by making clear decisions. And when I say ruthless prioritisation, that means also being clear out about what it is we're not doing because we can't do everything. Um, and we have to understand what the opportunity costs are of not doing certain things. So we're getting much better, I think, at now understanding what those trade-offs are in our organisation. We're going to have to continue to do that as we come out of COVID because we have to both balance the need to get trade and travel going again and to facilitate that. We're Australia's customs service. We're here to support trade. Almost a trillion dollars in two-way trade going across our borders just before the pandemic. But we also have to make sure we're on our, on our, on our guard against those threats and risks at the border too, at the same time. So prioritization is always gonna be part of the mantra. Um, Through COVID, of course, you need to be nimble and agile. Uh, One of the things I've learned through uh, COVID is uh, you can trust many things. You've got to trust yourself and your judgment. You've got to trust your people. Don't always trust your processes. Um, The processes sometimes were designed way before COVID and they're not nearly agile and lean enough. To point us to the right areas of decision making, so we've had to really think about some of our processes and really use our judgment and far more communication, just talking with people, frankly, through some of this complexity. I'll probably park there, David. Again, it's one of those. It's a really good question. I could talk a lot, but uh, hopefully, that's giving you some food for thought. Anyway,
0: well, it is. It's such a vast canvas upon which you do have to make these decisions. But if you were to give a bit of advice to others, other leaders um inside the APS around probably a couple of things in that one is around that ruthless prioritization you know how do you go about telling someone that what it is they need you to done to do is not your priority and is not going to be done how how do you communicate that effectively and then secondly, how do you not become slave to the black letter process that has been in place and how do you provide the uh, decision-making and the permission environment around those changes and those agilities so the organi- So your organisation was able to move faster?
1: Well, that's a very good point. One of, the, one of our biggest challenges through COVID has been um, bringing together data from our very disparate systems in order to um, inform decision-making, whether that be at the most senior levels of government or in the ABF. So we've had to really work hard on understanding where the data sits in our organisation to in order to diagnose where our rate of effort is going, um, what our performance is in that regard. And so, for example, mapping our workforce through the early parts of COVID, you know, understanding which offices used to be airports on, the, say, the 20th of January 2020, where are they today, how many we will need to surge back in to open the airports, modelling all of that. we've We've had to become far more uh, adept at collecting and using data and make, undertaking that business analysis to inform our decision-making. That's the first thing. And then trying to trying to embed that into our governance systems and processes and to actually industrialise it is the next stage. So we don't have to constantly keep on taking people offline to do those bespoke bits of work. So it's BAU. And the Department of Home Affairs um, have got a data op- operating model that we're all working towards in that regard. The second question was really a good one. I, it really resonates with me, that idea that You know, you can sort of saddle people with process. And we've just introduced through COVID, believe it or not, uh, we've introduced a new operating model in the ABF. Some would say that we're, um, you know, was kind of taking on more than we can sort of chewing more than we can, uh, biting off more than we can chew in that regard. But the reason we've done that is because in the first couple of months of COVID, what we saw was we had to empower our subject matter experts at the coalface to make decisions in real time. And they were really good at it. They know their job, they know their operating environment, and provided they were clear on what the guidance was um, from myself and through the line of command, they got on with it. I think what we've seen through COVID in the ABF at least is some tendencies towards then kind of overcorrecting and over bureaucratizing that and slowing us down, trying to introduce really good process in some senses, but really process that actually inhibits speed and agility. So it's getting the right balance here, I think. Um, but really giving the the front line the guide rails through having really well crafted standard operating procedures and processes and having really good governance that's focused on the right things, but at the right levels. So what we're doing in the ABF is we're actually we've actually moved to a geographic delivery model from away from a functional, a purely functional one and we're pushing as much of the governance down and accountabilities, if that matter, for performance and risk and those things down that line as close to the point of delivery as we can. Um, And I think that's really important to empower our people. And I've seen examples in the ABF over the last year of some processes that were put in place for the right reasons, say, for example, managing workplace health and safety risks. But it's actually led to a situation where frontline officers are having to phone people in Canberra for permission to undertake tactical operational activities. That just isn't where we want to be. Um, it 's counterintuitive so we 're actually really focused at the moment on empowering our people to get on with the job but we 've got to give them the guide rails we can 't throw out good governance accountability and process, but I think we 've over engineered it and we need to back it off and focus on delivery
0: mm, that's i 'm looking forward to our next conversation actually when we get together in maybe six or twelve months' time because i i 'll be interested to for you to at that point to explore this this notion of you know an, an, an edge Organization where that decision making is much closer to that, um, to the point of need, and how in fact you've been able to do that. Now, I do want to get to the border openings, but I also want to just go through a bit of a lightning round before we get to the uh, the challenge of reopening and your insight there. That you know, clo- clo- closing was a piece of cake when it, <laughs> but you know, opening um, slightly more difficult. So I'm I'm intrigued by that. But uh, lightning round. Um, reflecting on what's happened, um, biggest challenge.
1: Biggest challenge I think has been um, actually managing federation at the border. Even going back last year to Ruby Princess, uh, the border is a very complex system. Um, it's evolved since federation. Uh, it facilitates the movement of goods and people. It connects Australia to the rest of the world. It's used by bad people too. Um, but what we've seen through whether it's you know domestic borders individual chief health officers making decisions about vaccines that they like or don't like, um, what's happening at their international borders. Actually, I think that the biggest leadership challenge has been making sure that we stay connected to our state and territory counterparts um, and making sure at least we're aware of what each other's doing. We've had to learn and improve at the operational level in that regard. Um, I'd say also, you just touched on it really, I think that issue of balancing, in fact, to make a note, you know, one of the biggest challenges, balancing speed of action with the, um, the need for data and evidence. And uh, getting that balance right has been a big challenge too. I think at times we've over bureaucratized, um, overthought things, and slowed ourselves down unnecessarily.
0: But it's like that—that'll never finish, though. Really, will it? You know, that trying to find that balance is always going to be a case of you know too far one way, you know too far the other, and always you know just test and learning as as you you move through you know this volatile, uncertain, complex, and
1: ambiguous context that you operate in. I think that's right, but also. I think when you've got a, a an operating environment that's relatively stable, um, you kind of get your your battle rhythm right in general. Whereas through COVID, um, the operating environment's been refragmented. So the, the, the usual assumptions, the norms and the conventions that we have about inter, how international borders connect with each other has been completely turned on its head. Every country's got different tolerances for risk, different processes, different approaches to the movement of people. And we've had to deal with, deal with that. On almost a weekly basis, you've had shifts in state and territory policy that affect how we do our operations. So I think we've got to be more more lean and agile in our thinking about our operating models because they need to be able to adapt. Sure, if you can get into a, into a stable and standard battle rhythm, that's great and that's important. But I think we also know, know, need to know when and how we can we, we have to speed up and when and how we can sort of pull back into a sort of a, a more normalised battle rhythm. And COVID has taught us that quite often we have to accelerate and real quick. Um, and we have to have the the sort of flexibility within our SOPs and our governance to allow us to do that.
0: Okay, biggest surprise?
1: Biggest surprise? Um, well, I've got to say Ruby Princess came as a big surprise, but since <laughs> since then, um, I, I think... And, and of course, what I would say is, well... How well our organization adapted through covid, so um that's that's a pleasant surprise because we didn't know what a travel exemption looked like two years ago. Didn't exist. wasn't a process. Um, so um, so I think that the agility, the ability, and the willingness of our people to go to the extra yard has been, I say the biggest surprise, not because we didn't we didn't think that they had it in them, but you never tested it to this scale. And they keep on delivering time and time again. So it's been the biggest pleasant surprise, I've got to say. Um, I think that the, uh, the, another big surprise, I think, has has come today in terms of the, the speed with which um, the New South Wales Premier today has announced that New South Wales is opening up to international travellers without quarantine. Um, so that, that's come out today, this morning. Uh, and so, we knew that New South Wales were going to make an announcement. I'm not sure that anyone fully anticipated quite the extent to which they were going to go to in terms of the hotel quarantine arrangements and home quarantine arrangements and, and basically opening it up. So we'll be spending the next few days, no doubt, um, working with our ministers and the Commonwealth government and Commonwealth departments to uh, to understand how we we at the Commonwealth level now uh, operationalise at the international border.
0: Mm, that's interesting, isn't it? So did you have no visibility around that? decision.
1: Uh, well, we knew that New South Wales was going to make an announcement, and well, obviously we've been looking at the the, the national plan. And what they what they've announced isn't incongruent with the national plan, but of course we we're not privy to the decision making of the New South Wales cabinet, mm. um, and we 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 were planning for a left and right of arc, so it hasn't completely caught us out because we we plan for a sort of complete opening versus a you know, very conservative approach. We do have that sort of those sort of assumptions in our planning, um, but it's moved very quickly, and uh, I don't think we we fully anticipated. Well if you were to put put a bet on it, David, um, I'm not sure I would have bet on Mm. no home quarantine whatsoever for vaccinated international travellers. But, you know, um, New South Wales government have made the decision based on their own advice, and we will now interpret that and and understand how to operationalise at the border. But we can't always, you know, I guess, get ahead of what the states and territories are going to do. And that's been one of the things that are constant through COVID, uh, whether it's to do with the arrival of, you know, Positive COVID positive crew on bulk carriers or you know airplanes arriving up in the states. There's, there's been all sorts of challenges through this um, pandemic that have, have challenged, I think, that in relationships and policy and thinking, and you know, has caused people to ch- to change course. Yachts arriving, for example, in Darwin. Um, there's been a number of surprises we've had to respond to. But today was a good example where, okay, I mean, it hasn't taken us completely surprised by surprise. It was within our planning parameters, but probably we wouldn't put our money there.
0: Mm. Okay, next one, biggest success.
1: Business, biggest success, uh, is, there's many. Um, keeping COVID-19 out of our detention centres has been a huge success. Uh, Bear in mind that we have uh, Villawood right there in the heartland of Western Sydney, um, where there's been, you know, high rates of COVID-19 in the community for a long time now. Um, and managing the detention network around the country Um you know, with detainees who are removable who want to go home and we can't get them home. Um, so managing our detention operations has been a, a huge success. Managing the exemptions regime, inbound and outbound. Now, we haven't probably won everyone over on this. We can't please all the people all the time. But by and large, the exemption regime has worked. It's stood up and it's achieved its purpose in terms of minimising um, the uh, and slowing, certainly in the early days, the, the arrival of COVID-19 into Australia, but allowing people and business to get on and travel in the meantime. So uh, there have been a, a couple of our, our, our big successes. And I would, I would hope that next time we talk, we'll be talking about how we reopened the border as being the next big success. Uh, so, yeah, there's a couple off the bat.
0: Okay. Well, one more one more question before we get to that uh, discussion about reopening the borders. Biggest disappointment?
1: Uh, biggest disappointment? Huh, that's a really good question. Uh, I, I think the biggest disappointment through all of this was I think some of the um, – reporting around ruby princess if i'm being honest because mm-hmm. um i had six officers who who went on board that vessel and they were ostensibly, uh, people were trying to blame them for um ostensibly the deaths of people and that's that's really unfair and of course i came out publicly and spoke about that at the time that's really disappointing i think you know the sort of the the blame shifting and, uh, and the fact that you know people weighed into that um so heavily Without being armed with all the facts, that was really disappointing for me, Um, and uh, and I thought it was really uh, you know we're talking about very junior officers here um, who turn up at work every day, protect the border, Um, you know they they're doing their job, they did their job, they did what they were paid to do, and and to end up, you know, being pilloried publicly uh, the way they were was pretty disappointing.
0: Fair enough. Okay, reopening the borders. Tell me that story. When did when did the planning start? And clearly today, as you say, the example out of New South Wales, you must have uh, all sorts of plans in place for different states, different territories, and and everything in between.
1: Yeah, so it's it's, it's been going on for months. Um, frankly, the planning. We've been doing scenario planning. We've been doing walkthroughs of airports with um, SACL, for example, the airport corporation there in Sydney. We've been working with airlines. We engage with airlines frequently, whether that be Qantas or other people, um, and with the states and territories, health, police, um, premiers, et cetera, linking to Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, DFAT, um, our colleagues at Health, um, Department of Agriculture, Water resources, et cetera. So it's been a huge effort in terms of the planning what I would say is, put simply, is if you think about an airport and how it works, what the traveller th- pathway is through an airport has always been contingent, in my mind, upon what the states and territories do in terms of quarantine. So, in other words, if, there, if there's a requirement at an airport to untangle passengers according to where they came from, what their vaccination status is, whether their quarantine plan is suitable irrespective of who's doing that untangling, if that's going to occur within the airport, it's going to slow it down. And and at the moment, we can get, say, 2,700 people max a day through a single pier in Sydney with with the current COVID uh, regime where we're having to Distance people, temperature check them, sort them into buses for hotel quarantine. The state and territories do that. And we work with the states and territories, and those processes take a long time. Of course, you have bags as baggage carousels as well to manage into this process. Twenty-seven hundred a day. On a busy day in Sydney, ordinarily up here would be to take about thirty-five thousand a day. Mm. So a big difference. Now, we've always been saying, I've been saying uh, for weeks now, provided that the quarantine arrangements the states and territories put in place. Uh, the the sorting they have to do, or the compliance they have to do, doesn't have to occur at the airport. We can almost go back to that sort of fast lane approach. But if there's going to be a complicated untangling of passengers required, according to their various have they filled in certain forms, or have they got you know vaccines or not got vaccines, what country they came from, it's going to be a slow process. And that would then go through to offshore, what airlines do, the commercial decisions. So our airline is going to fly vaccinated and unvaccinated, capped or uncapped, passengers all on one airplane or not. So we've been working you know, between those two contingent variables in the middle, saying, OK, well, let's assume the worst and let's assume the best. Um, so in a sense, the decision in Sydney today from New South Wales government makes our job a little bit easier at Sydney International Airport. But you're right. I mean, Victoria or Western Australia or Queensland might make different decisions about the quarantine arrangements where you have to self-isolate at home. Some people have to go onto a a bus, into a hotel, etc. So, every airport in every state will be different. And we've been mapping out all the floor spaces, where the different processes will occur, how many offices we would need in terms of a fast lane process, a slow lane process. Um, And even now, today, we still don't know how the airlines will commercialize. What's going to happen in New South Wales and we'll have to see um, but really the fact is if it was all fast lane process New South Wales could go back to 70,000 a day um, in, a, in a busy period By in a few weeks time there'd be no reason why it couldn't it's all subject to what we have to do with the passengers offshore and onshore in terms of working out their vaccination status where they're coming from, um, and at the moment, of course, whether they've got an exemption. Uh, primarily, those processes are currently all occur offshore, and that's where we want them to occur, because otherwise it, it, it risks compaction and some, you know, some you know, problems at the Australian border if they all arrive unsorted, if I can put it that way.
0: Mm. All of that uncertainty, all of that wargaming, um, it sounds exhausting. <laughs> how, how are your people holding up? Um, with in in what has been, quite seriously, that just, that's, you know, you can just see, you know, people late at night, you know, working through scenario sort of 37, scenario 38, scenario 39, and then, you know, any sort of, you know, um, combination of those, of all of the above.
1: Yeah, look. I think managing through COVID, and this wouldn't be just be ours. A lot of lot of organisations and departments, um, a lot of people in the private sector. You know, people haven't had a proper a proper break for a couple of years. Um, COVID nineteen has has you know been quite relentless in many ways because it's thrown curveball after curveball after curveball. Um, you know, you, you you have an assumption one day that has to change the next. Yeah, you're, you're left and right of arc. Your planning assumptions are a long way apart, too far apart really for comfort. Um, So you're right. But in terms of looking after ourselves, I mean, our people have proven to be very resilient. And of course, we have been very focused on making sure that people are taking time off, leave, getting rest. But you're right, at the end of the day, we've had to have people working till midnight over weekends and those sorts of things. And that's not going to change immediately because we do have to get things like cruise ships going again and all those sort there's still a lot of work to do. A lot of work to do. Um, So managing the workforce, balancing the work across the workforce, not doing everything in Sydney or everything in Canberra or, you know, to spread the load has been something we've had to learn to do. And I think that COVID has given us the opportunity through, you know, virtual means like this. Like everyone, we've been running virtual meetings, people working from home, um, teams, you know, Zoom, all these things that none of us probably knew much about two or three years ago, uh, within our vocabulary and labs, BAU now almost. So, so I think spreading the load we're a big organisation. We have a national footprint. Rather than just concentrating on little of centres, is the way to do that. And getting all of our airport people to work together, for example, to connect to people in Canberra and actually bring in the subject matter experts into the planning early. Um, we don't we don't and know everything in Canberra, and we can't, and nor should we pretend to. So we've been pretty pretty focused on as well bringing in subject matter experts where we need to into those planning discussions and, and arrangements as well. Mm.
0: so is it your view that it's it's years like it, it'll never go back to how it was is that what is that a fair assumption and that we really all now need to get ready for this new world where things you know it it'll be a long time before we're sort of back into a, a steady steady um knowable way of, of of travel
1: that's again a really good question i i wish i knew the answer to that because i think that depends on what happens with covid19 um, and whether we get any more of these uh, variants of concern mm. that are of a concern in terms of our sort of vaccination status. So everything we're doing at the moment is hinging around, obviously, the vaccinations and the vaccination rates, not just in Australia, around the world. So let's assume that the um, the vaccination rollouts, the boosters, everything else in the future holds good. Then I think that we will push on again with the, the agenda that we had with private sector, industry airports, airlines before covid in terms of automated processes, people mm. want seamless travel. I think that's doable, mm. provided, though, of course, we get the the data pre-departure around a traveller's eligibility to be uplifted to Australia. So previously, that was their visa status, um, whether they were on any sort of any sort of alert or is any problem in relation to them. And we got advanced passenger information. We obviously had integrated systems with airlines to do that. Now you've got the health data overlay. Have they been vaccinated mm. with a vaccine we recognise? Have they um, been, you know, done a test, a PCR test or a rapid antigen test? And and how do we now validate that automatically? So I think there's still some evolution around what vaccine passports and how they link to digital certificates and those sorts of things look like. And, um, and whether airlines accept unvaccinated and vaccinated passengers and those things. So I think it's going to take some time to settle mm. down. And subject to what I said about other COVID variants of concern – then I think we can get back to travelling at scale again fairly quickly. The question is, can the, can the industry recover quickly enough because they've been putting aircraft into mothballs and, and all those sorts of things. So I think it would take um, months rather than weeks and, and possibly a couple of years subject to all things going well on the pandemic front.
0: Mm. Well, Michael outram well played. Uh, thanks for joining us today on Work With Purpose and thanks for you and your team at the ABF and all the – hard work that they have uh, put in over the last few months, really, or the last many months uh, to keep Australia safe and indeed to keep the, uh, you know, trade moving. So thank you very much uh, for coming on the program today.
1: Thank you, David. It's been my pleasure.
0: And to you, the audience, thank you for coming back once again. We are so grateful uh, for your ongoing support for Work With Purpose. Work With Purpose is a part of the GovComs podcast network. And if you would like to check out Uh, Work With Purpose, please go to your favourite podcast browser and it is sure to come up. And if you do happen to come across our social media promotion for the program, please pass it along by sharing. And if you are feeling particularly generous, a rating or a review of the program, that will help us to be discovered by more people. So thank you for your ongoing support. Thanks also to our good friends and colleagues at IPA and the Australian Public Service Commission for their support in putting the programs together every week. And if you haven't heard as yet the chance, if you haven't as yet had the chance, I should say, to listen to the Integrity Series, make sure that you do, hosted by Rena Brunsma of the Australian Public Service Commission and featuring a who's who of the Australian public sector. They're having very important conversations about the critical importance of ethics and integrity in the work of the APS, so make sure you tune in to the Integrity series. A big thanks as well to the team at Content Group, who, among all of their other content responsibilities for the APS, they do a great job each week in putting the program together and getting it to air. So a big thanks to Annabelle Fife and to Ben Curry. My name is David Pembroke. We'll be back at the same time in two weeks. But for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission.